what would you say was the most important, the most history-altering, maybe the most decisive battle in world history? Those of, those of us who might read a little bit about the past and like to learn might have an opinion on that, might have an answer to what was the most significant history-altering battle. Even those of us who maybe don't read too much about different wars, we know about World War I and World War II. We know there were significant battles and, and the winners of those battles determined the outcome of the war and, and changed the course of world history. And so what would you say? What, what is the most significant battle? Well, today, the story that we're going to be looking at in the Gospel of Luke, it's the record of what I would say is one of the most intense battles, not only on this planet, but in the history of of the whole universe. And we're going to see in the outcome of, of this battle, the victory of our Savior Jesus over the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, the devil. And so I'd like us to read the story together first as we begin. If you have your Bibles, uh, please open with me to uh, Luke chapter 4. We've been embarking on a journey through the Gospel of Luke. And last week, Jeff took us through the genealogy in cha chapter 3. We learned that Jesus is a man, that Jesus is a man descendant from Adam like all of us. And because of that, he is the Savior of all people. We've entitled these first few chapters in Luke, he is here introducing Jesus. And this morning, as we look at this intense battle between Jesus and the devil, we see the temptation of Christ. We're going to learn about how Jesus succeeds where we fail. Jesus succeeds where we fail. And so Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of God. There's so much for us to learn, to glean from this momentous battle in the life of Jesus. We see his final moment of preparation before his ministry here on earth. We see that he is the perfect, sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb who will accomplish our salvation, his death, and his death on the cross, and his resurrection. We see he is able to defeat sin. He is able to defeat the devil. 
But this morning, we're going to focus on how Jesus succeeds where we have failed. And my prayer for us as a church is that we will be more filled with love for our Savior Jesus, who went through the worst of temptations, the worst of trials, so that he might redeem us. And my prayer also is that we will be equipped to better face the trials and the temptations in our lives by learning from Jesus' example and by being comforted that Jesus has experienced the worst of it so that he might help us in our weakness. And so what's the setting for this story? Verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. What does this mean? It means this is taking place after his baptism in the Jordan River. We looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 3. This was an amazing high in Jesus' life. He is confirmed and assured that he is the son of God and he is loved by a voice from heaven. And then after that, he is led into the wilderness to face hell and the devil. It says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. This was God who was leading him here and who was setting up this intense battle for a purpose. It might seem strange that, that God would lead Jesus into the wilderness, into a barren place. This was considered to be uh, the, the driest, the most barren, no food, no water place in the whole country. But God let him out so that Jesus could be alone with the Father. He could pray. It says that he ate nothing. He was fasting. He was considering his mission here on earth, and he was alone with the Father. It says he was there for 40 days, and he was tempted by the devil the whole time. Immediately when we see 40 days, we're reminded of, of another story in the Bible. We're reminded of the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience and their sin against God. So right away, we're getting some clues as to what this story is about. Where Israel failed to trust in God in the wilderness, Jesus now succeeds in perfectly trusting in God in his wilderness. But the connections don't stop only with the nation of Israel. Remember last week we went through the genealogy. Luke put a genealogy right in between the baptism and the temptation. And it's, it's as if he is saying, Jesus is truly a man, descended from Adam. And he is tempted as a man, just like we are. And he shows us this in the story. But it's also as if he's saying, by ending the genealogy with Adam, the son of God, the end of chapter 3, it's almost as if, as if he's saying, Adam, the son of God, failed and plunged the whole human race into sin and death. But now a second Adam, the true son of God, has come, and he will not fail, and he will bring life, and he will bring salvation to the human race. Where Adam failed, where he was tempted, Jesus will not fail. If Jesus can't defeat the devil, then we have no hope. If Jesus is vulnerable to sin, then how will he save sinners like us? As we consider this comparison of Adam and Jesus, we see two men who were sinless, two men who faced temptation, two men whose decisions would affect the course of human history. But then we see that Jesus' conditions were infinitely harder as well. Adam was in a paradise garden, and Jesus was in the wilderness. Adam was with the loving communion and fellowship of his wife, Jesus was alone. Adam had all the food that he needed, and Jesus had absolutely nothing. But Jesus, as we will see in his intense time of testing and temptation, will not fail like Adam. 
He will not fail like Israel. And I think this story is also teaching us that he will not fail like, like you and I do every day. Jesus succeeds where we fail. And so we're going to look at the three temptations that the devil tempts him with, and we're going to examine why they would have been temptations for Jesus and how he succeeded in overcoming them. And we're going to think about what we can learn and what we can apply for our lives as well. So let's look at the first one. The first temptation, Jesus is tempted to doubt God's loving provision. He's tempted to doubt God's loving provision in verses 3 and 4. The devil comes, and he challenges Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God. He tempts him to prove that he's the Son of God by turning this stone into bread to eat it. Remember, Jesus was hungry. He was 40 days in the wilderness, not eating anything. And I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, when I haven't eaten something, even for a little portion of time, I might think some things or I might say some things that I later regret. I remember one time I was traveling in Europe with some friends and we were backpacking and we got to the train station early in the morning for a nine-hour train ride. It was going to be the whole day. And we said, okay, we'll, sh- we'll, we'll show up a little bit early so we can get some food for the whole day. And we show up at 8 o'clock. The train was supposed to leave at 8.30. And we looked at the train and it said, leaving now. So we ran on the train and we got on the train and we were happy. Yeah, we, we made it. Uh, we didn't miss the, the train. It's going to be good. And then we realized we don't have any food. It's going to be nine hours on this train. And so we looked around. There was no vending machine selling Hungarian snacks. I don't know what they would sell. But we looked around. We didn't have any food. And so we checked our bag, and we, we found we had some peanut butter and two Advil. <laughs> and so we, we rationed that out, and, and we took, ate our peanut butter, and I think I took one of the Advil as well. <laughs> but the point is, by the end of that train ride, I was starving. We made it through, but I was not happy. I think I said some things to my friends that I later regretted. And that was only nine hours. Imagine 40 days. Jesus would have been truly hungry. And the devil now comes and he tempts him to doubt God's loving provision, to doubt God's love for him. He says, if you're really the son of God, why would he be letting you suffer like this out here? You're, you shouldn't be going hungry. Just, just use your power. Make this stone into bread and eat it. Now, the problem was not that Jesus could not have done that. The temptation was to act outside of God's will. The Father had led Jesus in the wilderness for a time of strengthening and testing as a man. Jesus was to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and trust in God's provision during this time of strengthening and growth. He was not to take the easy way out. He was to face this temptation as a man. And that was the temptation. Take the easy way out, satisfy his physical desire, uh, and turn away uh, from what God wanted him to do. And so how will Jesus respond? We see Jesus responds by quoting scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man does not live by bread alone. This scripture is referring back to God miraculously providing for Israel in the wilderness when they were uh, 40 years in disobedience. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. God has not willed it that I have bread now to eat, and I'm, but I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to trust that he loves me and that he will provide for me, and I'm going to trust in his word. 
Jesus is demonstrating that there was no physical need or desire that would drive him away from trusting in God's word and that would drive him into sin. He's saying, I'm not going to give in to the immediate satisfaction in sin because there's a more permanent satisfaction in God's word. What are the implications of this for us today? I think we see Jesus here being tempted to doubt God's love, to believe that God didn't love him and wouldn't provide for him. He's being tempted to act independently from God, take matters into his own hands. And it just reminds me, it makes me wonder, are there times when I put my physical needs or my physical desires above the desire to trust in God and to trust in his word? But Jesus reminds us here that that God will provide for his children. And this temptation was to doubt God's loving provision, but Jesus succeeded in trusting that God will provide. Let's look at the second temptation. Second temptation is that Jesus is tempted to doubt God's gracious plan. He's tempted to doubt God's gracious plan. That's verses 5 to 8. So the devil comes back. He didn't succeed in his first temptation. He comes back to Jesus and he presents him with a vision. A vision of sorts of all the nations turning away from their idols, coming to Jesus, making him Lord, making him their king. The devil's saying, you can win the world. world. You can have all the nations worship you right now. You won't have any pain. You won't have to go through any suffering. You won't have to go through any work for it. As we read more in the life of Jesus, we know that his life was filled with suffering in pain, especially on the cross, the excruciating death on the cross. And so this was Satan's offer. He said, if you will just bow down to me, worship me, for one moment, I will give you what you came to do. I'll give you the nations, worshiping you, without any weeping, without any crucifixion, any trials, any suffering. And we can see how this temptation would have been a powerful enticement I mean, all Jesus had to do was just bow down, acknowledge Satan as the limited sovereign of this world for for a moment, give the devil the brief satisfaction of seeing that, and then he wouldn't have to go through the pain of the cross. It it would be like a shortcut. And so how did Jesus respond? He looks at the devil again, and he quotes from Scripture, this time Deuteronomy 6, and he says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. This was taken from Moses, warning the people against idolatry. And Jesus is essentially saying, he's bringing the issue back to worship. He's saying, who is worthy of worship? God. Only God. Jesus would not make any concessions on this most basic thing, this most fundamental thing, even if it would potentially do something good. I mean, wouldn't it be good for the nations to worship Jesus in that moment? No, not if it involves turning away from God and committing idolatry. Jesus acknowledges as well that the cross must precede the crown, that the way to glory is through suffering for others and the following God's will, even if it will be harder than doing, taking the easy way, is what Jesus does and what we as his followers have to do as well. But we can see how this would have been so tempting for him. I mean, even you and I, when we know that there is something coming that we're not looking forward to, it hurts us. It causes us 
anxiety and struggling inside. And for me, when I was a kid, it was needles. <laughs> when I knew there was a needle coming at the doctor's office, I would be crying in the car. I would be upset. I would be really angry. And I remember one time, as the doctor was preparing the needle, I even ran out of the office and tried to go onto the street. I, I don't think I made it very far. And I think the doctor had a stern talking with me after, and I never did it again. But it was just the lead up to that, that point that got me so scared and so upset, and, and it, was, it was painful just waiting for this, for this thing I wasn't looking forward to. So think about Jesus, years of lead up to the cross, to a painful experience in his death and suffering. So we could see how this would have been so enticing. But praise Jesus that he didn't do it that he didn't take the easy way out, that he said, no, I'm not going to take the easy way. My worship must only be for God. And in choosing to do that, he accomplished our salvation. What are some implications for us? I think, one, the world is telling us, screaming at us, avoid pain. Take the easy way. Take the path of least resistance. But Jesus is saying here, he's embracing the cross and refusing to take the easy way. And he says, if we will follow after him, we must do the same. He says in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's saying the Christian life will be hard. But what's amazing about this is that right after Jesus says those words in Matthew, he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The grace of God is that if we choose to lose our life for the sake of Christ, we will actually find true life. True life, doing what we were made to do, worship God, follow after Christ, give glory to the Son. So this second temptation was for Jesus to doubt God's plan, his gracious plan, but he succeeds in trusting that God's plan is best, even if it's not the easy way. And before moving on to the third temptation, I I think it's helpful here just to remember that there will be a day, Philippians 2 tells us, where at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. And so if you haven't made Jesus the Lord, the king of your life, if you've never done that, I urge you to, to do it today, to do it now, to, to bow the knee to Jesus, make him the king, the Lord of your life, do it right now, even in your seat, in your heart. There's coming a day when we will all worship him. Wouldn't it be better to be part of that victory parade, praising Jesus for what he has done? The third temptation, let's turn to the third temptation. It's Jesus is tempted to doubt God's perfect protection. To doubt God's perfect protection. This is verses 9 to 12. The devil comes back again. He leads Jesus to the highest point of the temple. People say on the roof of the temple, when you overlooked the valley, it would make you dizzy just looking. It was so high. So obviously, if you jumped, you would need God to help you if you weren't going to die. So the devil takes Jesus up, and he says, okay, Jesus has responded with Scripture the first two times. I'm going to try and twist Scripture now, use it against him. So he tempts Jesus by quoting from Psalm 91, and the devil obviously knew his Bible well enough to do that. He quotes from Psalm 91, and he says, If you're the Son of God, why don't you jump? And why don't you show us that God will help you? Doesn't it say in Psalm 91, God will command his angels to help you, and you won't strike your foot against a stone? 
If you're committed to God's word, okay, obey it. Show us. Jump. Jesus responds now, once again, with scripture, but this time with a right understanding of scripture, not like Satan's twisting. He responds and he clarifies that we are not to put God to the test. We are not to dictate to God what we would like him to do, when we would like him to do it. His promise of protection of his children is a beautiful truth, and we must hold on to that, but that does not mean we force him to display it in supernatural ways. The temptation was for Jesus to say, yes, I do believe God's word, and I will show you exactly how much I do, but his response shows that the devil was actually misusing and misunderstanding God's word, and it would have been a sin for Jesus to put God to the test in this way. Are there any implications for our lives today? I think there are. I think, first of all, we know that God will hold on to his children, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And that's a beautiful, wonderful truth. But it's not a pass, then, to get near to sin, to come near to sin and force God to act by not letting us go too far. This might look different for all of us, but this wonderful truth of God's protection and that he will hold on to us, does not allow us to go close to sin, but instead, true faith wants to run away from sin and run to Christ. We don't want to control God, but we want to serve him and worship him. Another way this might apply for us is is we might dictate to God exactly what we want to happen, how we want him to do it, when we want it to come about. And then on the flip side, we might get upset with him when it doesn't. We might blame him when trials or suffering comes or We might become embittered or angry. Something amazing about this story that I I don't know if I can get over. I think it's so amazing. It says that it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. It was God who brought Jesus into this time of testing. This wasn't a punishment. Jesus was sinless. God brought him into this situation for his growth, for the purpose for us for our purpose now, to see how Jesus handled it. And so I think this shows us that trials in our lives are sent by God, and the issue is how we will respond to them. And so do we respond to them by getting angry, by trying to reassert control of our lives, by, by disobeying God's word? Or do we respond by looking to God in faith, resting in his hand, reaching out to him more and more, learning what we need to learn through what we're going through. This is hard for me personally. I I wish I could say I I did better with that. I wish I could say when things got hard internally or externally, I trusted in God more. I, I walked with him more closely. But the reality is I want to know Christ more. I want to walk with him more closely. I want to look more like Christ. I, I want to grow spiritually and I ask God that he would do that. But I often forget that The way he usually does it is by bringing trials and suffering into my life. I I often think if I simply ask God to grow me spiritually, it will be painless. It'll be overnight. It'll be so simple, and it'll be done, and I'll be more holy, and I'll love God more. But the way he usually works is, is not like that. The way he usually works is by bringing trials and testing so that I would learn to trust him more, that I would learn to love him more. And oftentimes the trials that come are are not what you're expecting at all, not what I'm expecting, and that's what makes them so hard. There's an amazing, famous hymn 
written by uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And the hymn's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And it's a, a little testimony or a little story of how he asked the Lord that he would grow spiritually, but God did it in a completely opposite or a completely unexpected way. The hymn starts off, he says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his faith. And I think that's the heart of many of us. We want to grow. We want to know him more. And then the hymn continues. He said, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And then the hymn ends with two verses that'll be on the screen. He says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to die? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. This is how God works. This is how God often works. And I think, I think this story of Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit shows us this. Jesus responds to this third temptation by trusting in God's perfect plan, not putting God to the test. And the devil leaves defeated, not ultimately crushed until the further work of Jesus that is coming, as we're going to read about in Luke. But in this decisive, intense, important, significant battle, Jesus wins. He shows that he is able to succeed even where, where we fail. He shows that he is the proven son of God and that he is sinless. And this is so important because we need a sinless, perfect sacrifice to die for us, to set us free from our sin. And so I'd just like to conclude with, with two remarks, two things I think I've learned from this story and, and I think we can, we can take away. The first one is Jesus... If Jesus resisted sin with the help of God's Spirit and the help of God's Word, how much more do we need it? If Jesus relied on God's Spirit and on God's Word, he knew God's Word, he quoted from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, how much more do we need that every single day, every single moment? And the second, second thing is I had mentioned how the title, the, the theme of this message is Jesus Succeeds Where We Fail. And that's so true. And that's so good. But I think I just want to qualify that title just a little bit. He didn't just succeed where we fail to now leave us, to continue to fail and just leave us where we are. But I'd like to adjust this title a little bit and say, Jesus succeeds where we fail in order to help us succeed in resisting sin in order to help us succeed in resisting sin. There's an amazing verse in Hebrews 4.15, and it'll be on the side screen. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. This verse is amazing. It says we have a high priest, that's Jesus, who's been tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin. This shows us that when we're facing trials, temptations, we can reflect on the life of Jesus. We can think about what he's been through. And though the details might not have been exactly similar, we can rest that Jesus has been through all of this and that he emphasizes with us. He knows what it's like to live in a broken world, to feel the hurt and the pain 
of, of this fallen world, and he wants to empathize with us and draw near to us. But what's also so amazing about this verse is that I think sometimes we think, sometimes I think, okay, Jesus was perfect. He, he, he knew how to get through temptation and sin, and that's great, but I still fail. I still fail so often. But what this verse says is that he's able to empathize with us in our weakness. He's able to empathize with us in our weakness. It's in those moments when we've fallen once again, where, where we can't get out of, of this habitual sin, where we feel the hurt of the world, where people have left us, where, where people have hurt us, where we feel like we've missed the opportunity once again, when we feel like everyone's laughing at us once again. It's in our weaknesses. That's when he wants to draw near to us. That's when he wants to come near to us and, and, and help us. His perfection, his perfect life was not just something for us to think about, but he wanted to show us that he is our perfect savior and he now wants to reach down and save us and help us and grow us and he feels our pain and he feels our weakness alongside of us. We got to see a, a little part of that today as he faced those three temptations and, and all the rest of the temptations he faced we'll read about in the book of Luke. I think we see Jesus knows firsthand the hurt and the pain of living in this broken world, but he wants to help us and he wants to draw near to us. So I'll just close with this. It says, this is a quote that says, Jesus was tempted for our sakes. This means he withstood the pressures by his triumph over sin where we have failed and he was credibly tempted so that we would believe he is truly a fellow sufferer with us in our temptation and he is compassionate and ready to lend us the help we need when we are caught in temptation. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this account in the life of Jesus that we get to learn. Lord, we get to see that he is able to defeat the devil. He is able to defeat sin. He is the perfect, sinless Savior. But God, thank you that he did it for us. Thank you that he succeeded where we failed so that he might now help us to succeed in following after you and in growing more. God, we, we want to know him more, Lord, and please help us um, to go through trial and suffering, to trust in you more, to grow closer with you, to use it as an opportunity to minister to others as well. And please, Lord, would, would the name of Jesus and, 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 and his perfect life go forward from us? Would we speak about him and share him with others? I pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, we're reminded through this story that there, there are deserts and trials in life. There are temptations. But we have one. We have Jesus who has succeeded in all these areas and who now wants to help us. Let's go to him this week. Let's come to him. Let's walk closely with him. And let's tell others about him as well. Harbor, we are sent.